I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To help us get to the truth of the matter and understand what has happened in the German elections, we have none other than Heather Conley, Senior Vice President at CSIS, Europe and Eurasia Program Director, extraordinary, extraordinary colleague, great friend. Heather, welcome to the podcast. Andrew, it's great to be here. And I know my title is a mouthful, so I apologize. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, Heather, look, the results are in and it's an interesting election because Germany has to form its first minority government. So tell us what all this means and who's actually going to be leading this government. This is all in wake of the great leader, Angela Merkel, stepping down. So you're absolutely right. This is the post-Miracle era. We're, we're, we're beginning to, to understand it. I think, though, it certainly will be a majority government. But this will be the first time that it, three parties will have to form the government. And this is where the tricky part, part is. If I can, let me just, just highlight a couple of things that struck me about this election. It was a generational election. So if you were over 70, you likely voted for the two main establishment parties, the Christian Democratic Union and the Social Democratic Party. If you were under 25, you voted for the Greens or the Free Democratic Party or the Liberal Party. So a real generational issue. And this is also where you had a body politic that didn't want to talk about issues. They didn't want to talk about European issues. They didn't want to talk about global instability. They wanted to talk about very domestically focused, inward focused issues. So this was a really wasn't about issues. And it was about searching for a personality that most resembled Angela Merkel. And it was, and that's, that goes against German politics because they vote for parties. They don't vote for personalities. And so, of course, the person that they found most like Angela Merkel was actually her coalition partner, the Social Democrats, the finance minister, Olaf Scholz. So it was a really extraordinary uh, election with a lot of surprises. This is a transitional moment for Germany. We are we won't find the real post-Merkel era until their next election, which will be in 2025. Let's talk about Olaf Scholz. How is he like Merkel and how is he not like Merkel? So I think from a personality standpoint, he's viewed as this very affable former mayor of Hamburg. He's smiling. He's very steady. He's very calm. He has not always been successful. He was a labor minister and a a former grand coalition government, was not seen as very successful. They point that out a lot about him. Like you can't get through an article about him without somebody saying, well, he wasn't always very successful. I will tell you what, what, what I admire, I guess, about his political career is he has had some real turmoil uh, and has lost things, but he works steadily back to regain it. But I think the most important thing to know about Olaf Scholz is that that smiling, affable, more centrist position, that does not represent the Social Democratic Party in Germany today. He was not elected the party leader in 2019 to more, I would say, harder left, uh, a little more radical voices, I guess is the best 
way to say it. They were the ones that really control the party. It is their voices that are in these, that will be in the future party negotiations to form this new government. So he, there's a real disconnect in some ways from that smiling face to actually where that party stands on a lot of very important political issues. So we'll see if some of that difference comes out as these parties negotiate. But the funny thing is, Andrew, here are the two parties that won the most votes, the Social Democrats and the Christian Democrats. Social Democrats, 25.7%, CDU, 24.1%. They're almost not negotiating now. It's the two other parties, the Greens and the Liberals. They're the ones that are actually negotiating with each other to see if they can agree on something. And then I think they will go first to the Social Democrats, of course, because they did win the election, but they may also go to the Christian Democrats. And it was just announced that the the CDU is going to start opening a conversation with the Greens and the FDP over the weekend. So this is going to have a lot of moving parts. It's going to take a long time. Is anybody in Europe or the United States going to understand this until the dust settles? No. And, you know, even when even when the parties, it looks like we have the three parties and they are in agreement, they will then go into a very difficult negotiation to come to an agreed coalition platform. It's really important. Those words and the negotiation around all the details of that platform are so important because those three parties are going to follow that platform. They don't move beyond it. That's that's really their commitment. It will take a very long time because all three of these parties have very different views on on taxes, on you know how to adjust to you know German Germany's export economy and climate change. Um, how do they think about fiscal transfers within Europe? How do they feel about defense, security, Russia, China, all of these issues, these three parties, if it's the Social uh, Democrats, the Greens and FDP, they don't agree on any of that. They, there's some areas, but a lot of divergences. So it's going to take a while. And if it starts to stumble, the Christian Democrats are going to say, hey, you can come my way. I will lead that government. I may be, so it's going to, in some way, it's going to see who who can accommodate the most. The Greens feel more comfortable with the Social Democrats on a lot of issues. The Liberals feel more comfortable with the Christian Democrats. So you're going to see this move around. It's going to take a long time. For the German people, what are some of the central issues here? And why Olaf Scholz, why is he going to be in the lead in the end? So I think it's, yeah, it's so important for people to understand that the highest priority in German politics is stability. Right. And that stability, uh, of course, we can completely understand from their volatile 20th century history, stability and consensus to reach that stability. Right. That's what's important. This was an issue-free election. Now, in some ways, that is a, I think that's a bit of a legacy from, from Chancellor Merkel. She was brilliant in some ways that, you know, they called her Muti, mother, of making sure that the German electorate would not be disturbed, that everything was fine. It was in very calm, capable hands. It reflected, you know, Angela Merkel's policy always reflected German public opinion. It, it's very clear. So it was this calm thing. So this was an election to not talk about issues. They didn't want to change that calm. 
The problem is there are big issues that Germans need to wrestle with. The future of their economic competitiveness, their security, their relationship with Europe and their their role. And none of that was part of this conversation. So what Olaf Schultz, the benefit that he gets from that is that he's he is the personality that people feel comfortable with. But let's look at that coalition platform because they could wake up to uh, you know some some real differences in policy that were not always present in those beautiful shining posters of a smiling Olaf Schultz saying everything will be fine. This may be a bit of a surprise if the parties can you know agree to make some decisive moves about taxes or about infrastructure or you know toughening policies towards Russia and China. Let's talk about security for a second. With the recent AUKUS deal, the US, UK, Australia deal on nuclear submarines, the French were apoplectic. They pulled their ambassadors. They've since been reinstated or said they're going to reinstate them. Macron was upset, to say the least. Macron had positioned himself as the strong national security person in Europe. And he had the luxury of doing that because he had Merkel's support, even though Germany hasn't been hawkish on European defense, but he had her support. The AUKUS deal sent a pretty clear signal that the United States was pivoting away from the transatlantic relationship to some extent and going to Asia and worrying about China and curbing Chinese behavior. I know you have some thoughts about this. How does Schultz and the future of Germany play into that equation? So in the run-up to the September 26th election, both Olaf Schultz and the CDU chancellor candidate Armin Laschet both met with President Macron. And why is that always very important symbolically? Because European, you know, any any direction, any shift and change, there has to be agreement between Paris and Berlin. Now, I will say that there's frustrations, though, and differences, important differences between Paris and Berlin, particularly on security and defense. Germany understands that its security is reliant on U.S. guarantees, uh, and NATO is is foundational and so important to Germany. France has a very complicated relationship, going back to Charles de Gaulle, that there should be a unique European defense identity that's independent from the United States. And of course, that identity would be French-led. And so President Macron has always tried to create this energy around an independent European defense identity. The problem is he's running into other EU members that that are saying, no, we need the United States. If you are in Central Europe, you have to have a strong American support to deter Russian aggression. So this hasn't gotten so far. And that's actually what we saw after the AUKUS announcement. And they were sympathetic, very sympathetic to the fact that this was a shock and the lack of consultation, which has been a strong reoccurring theme. Uh, The Afghanistan withdrawal was probably more of a shock to our European colleagues than, than maybe AUKUS. But there was not a huge amount of French support. They understood it. They were sympathetic, but they did not want it to disturb the transatlantic security bonds. But you're right. Paris has some real questions about this future German government, and its composition will be very important because the Social Democrats represent 
for Paris, a much more sympathetic partner on increasing fiscal transfers in Europe, making euro bonds and debt mutualization uh, a possibility. And but this is an anathema to the Free Democrats. And so that's where part of that negotiation will be. But look, President Macron, as much as he's interested in how the German government will form, he is worried about his own election, his re-election. And the first round of the French presidential elections will happen in April of next year. We are seeing a lot of movement right now in public opinion in France. The AUKUS decision, but to your point, was harmful. It, 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 It increased both the left and the right in France to be very angry towards the United States, calling this the great humiliation, the stab in the back. And President Macron is going to have to use that anger and it, it will, I believe, continue where possible to, to punish the United States. But it's also mindful that it depends, France depends on the United States uh, in our security posture and intelligence posture in the Sahel, for example. So there's so much mutual dependency between the United States and Europe. We can't afford the mistakes that we are making and the divisions that we're seeing. We really, we need to fix these, you know, and, and stop these own goals, if you will. And AUKUS was a bit of a, an own goal in the European dimension of it. We've got to be able to do better. And Macron will probably face a runoff against Marie Le Pen, which makes it even more complicated for him because he's going to need to run kind of against her and against the United States in a way. Andrew, this is so volatile, we cannot even be sure that Le Pen will make it into the second round. You're right, there will be a second round, there'll be a runoff, because right now she even has competitors even more on the far right that are now, just a very recent opinion poll has the television commentator uh, on their more right-centered network. He just jumped to 13% of the polls. His name is Eric Zimar, and he is one to watch. So there's a lot of volatility right now. And that's the election, in my view, to watch. We could we could be in for some surprises there. How will Olaf Schultz be dealing with the far right in Germany? I mean, that's they're a factor there too. This is the good news out of the election results Both the far right, the alternative for Deutschland, and the far left, Die Linke, they both did very poorly this election. Particularly the the, the left, Die Linke, did not even make it formally into parliament. You have to cross the 5% threshold. They only, they came in below it. Uh, Now, they do have seats in the Bundestag because of uh, the the direct sort of representation that comes through it. But Alternative for Deutschland came in a little above 10%. The polls had them a little higher. The last election in 2017, of course, they were 12, almost 13%. And because the, the two main parties went into government, the Alternative for Deutschland was the largest opposition party uh, in the Bundestag, but they did very poorly. Thankfully, they're very divided. So this is the good news. You have a, a very radical part of the AFD and a more centrist. They are continuing to battle one another. I think in many respects, Die Linke was not as successful because uh, the Social Democrats are tilting more, more left. I think they pulled some of those voters. But what's so worrying in the election outcome is that Alternative for Deutschland may have not done as well. We're grateful for that. But they're doing very well in the former east of Germany. They came up as the largest party in Saxony and Thuringia. That's a problem. 
So they're doing well in pockets on the state level in Germany. What are the implications of AFD's mixed election results for, you know, Germany and for other far right parties across Europe? Yeah, I mean, I think we are really seeing a very nuanced picture uh, on, on the far right across Europe. You see in Italy, again, it, it's the far right is trying to figure out how to get into government. And in order to do that and be more appealing when elections come around, and Le Pen is doing this in France as well, they're starting to take a centrist tact to be more acceptable to a broader swath of the population. The moment they take steps to be more acceptable, they then almost radicalize their their party or elements of their party because now they're becoming like one of the establishment. And then that sort of creates a, a far a farther right component that starts outrighting them. This is what's happening in Italy with Brothers of Italy. This is what's happening in some ways in a different way in France with this Eric Zemmour, who's who's been uh, has been more popular. So it, it's a fracturing of the far right. Um, it's more dangerous. So the elements are more radical, more dangerous. But as long as they're divided internally, that does give centrist party an opportunity to gain credibility and regain trust and be able to govern more effectively from the center. Are we seeing a dangerous trend from the far left as well? So, you know, and it's interesting that some analysts have suggested sort of this is the return of the left. So for so long, you saw just center-right parties sweep many European elections. And we just had the Norwegians, uh, Norwegian elections where the Labour Party came in on top, will be a minority government. You had the Social Democrats come out of nowhere, recover, do very well in Germany. You had the Italian Labour uh, and and. PD parties stabilizing a little bit. So it sort of feels like finally the left is is regaining its footing a little bit. It's always been a weaker organizational structure on the political left in Europe. It is fragmented from, you know, communists or Trotskyites, uh, very radical that haven't really been part of the mainstream. So the, the, the problem has always come from the more organized right. But again, we want centrism. We want strong, stable governments that can produce results. And that is the best way you compete against radical left and radical right. You have to prove your competency. And of course, the pandemic and immigration and the financial crisis over the last decade plus has really undercut the public opinion about the competency of government and therefore lack of trust in, in government. So given all that and you know, a new leader in Germany is coming in, Angela Merkel was known as you know, uber competent to use a German phrase, what does her absence mean for the overall EU going forward? Yeah, she will be very missed at the heads of government table, the European Council table, because in some ways, again, she reflects the German DNA of stability and consensus. She excelled when, when the EU was at a crisis moment. She remained calm. She lasted for hours. She was the energizer bunny. She worked around the room to try to find that consensus. She was respected for listening to everyone and finding the way forward. 
that's what Europe is going to miss. No one had, you know, her 16 years, been there, done that, had lived through all of these very difficult crises, knew the leaders, knew when to give them space, knew when to pull them back a little bit. That will be missed. The other side of that coin, though, is that that stability and that consensus, and this is true for Germany, it's true for issues in the EU, she didn't deal with problems. That was not what she wanted to do. That stability sacrificed problem solving. So you have now the real problem of illiberalism in Central Europe as represented by Hungary, Poland, now Slovenia. No one dealt with that problem. You you have the, the challenges on Nord Stream 2, the EU's trade policies with, with China, which she was protecting German economic interests, understandably, but those larger issues weren't addressed. And this is where Olaf Scholz or whoever the next leader of Germany will be. You can only delay that for so long. And Germany has a lot of challenges, as does the EU, that they're going to have to face. What is it going to mean for trade with the United States? On September the 29th, we just had the first meeting of the US-EU Trade and Technology Council. This meeting was almost canceled or postponed because of AUKUS, so that was almost a direct result of that. Some of the statements we could tell were a little watered down. I think, again, uh, this is going to be continued French concern about this cooperation. But what it tells me is we have got to forge a path with our EU colleagues on digital competitiveness, on technology. This council is a really first important step in trying to frame those issues. But we don't have a trade agenda with the EU. We aren't going to revisit the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, TTIP, which was something that was active under the Obama administration because President Biden has made clear they're not going to be focusing on major trade deals. And within the EU, there is no popular support for these big trade deals, particularly, again, French presidential elections, anything to do with agriculture. That's just going to be politically difficult until after the presidential election. So we're trying to forge a new path on technology. We're trying to minimize the difficulties with Airbus tariffs, but yet we still haven't resolved steel and aluminum tariffs. They are still... And so what many of our uh, European colleagues see is a similar trade and protectionist policy, a continuity of policy from the Trump administration to the Biden administration. Uh, And they understand themselves that trade uh, within Europe is not greatly popular. So we both have very similar political postures on this, but it means a missed opportunity to create jobs in the United States and, you know, supply chains that our allies support and protect us. And of course, Europe is missing economic opportunity as well. Now, how should the United States and in particular the Biden administration view this transition going on in Germany and what it means for the larger EU? What every non-German seems to make the mistake of is we keep asking Germany to lead and the the way we want it to lead, what we want to see Germany to do. And this is just a fool's errand. Uh, they, They do lead. Angela Merkel has been leading for 16 years. Germany is the largest economy in the EU, the largest country by population. 
it leads, but it does it in its own way, on its own terms, in conformity with its interests. And those interests typically are certainly European interests, but sometimes they go against European interests like Nord Stream 2. Sometimes they go against U.S. interests as well. So they do lead, but they lead in their own way and not how we expect. So I, what I would advise the Biden administration, at number one, Angela Merkel is going to be a caretaker for a little while. I, I Unless some things rapidly fall into place, which they might, this is going to take a very long time. So we won't know what this new government is. This new government is going to be a series of contradictory compromises that will mean it can't do anything big. It's holding itself. It, it almost sounds a lot like the, I, I frame this in sort of U.S. politics at that 50-50. Sometimes we, we want to keep it divided because we don't want it to do maybe bigger things. And I think there's some reflection there as well. But even though we can't do some things, we are able to do some things unilaterally in foreign policy and, you know, make decisions in that regard. How are we going to view their foreign policy making apparatus? Well, their foreign policy, number one, the parliament, the Bundestag, has an enormous authority over that. Again, from their history, that a leader, they don't enjoy the executive powers right. uh, that we would do. And of course, it's highly controversial for Germany to send forces overseas, although they do, they must get permission every time they do that from the parliament. Now, a social democratically led government will be more isolationist. They'll be more pacifist in their approach. They won't want to send German forces. They certainly will not, you know, increase German defense spending. So that will certainly prove uh, a challenge for the Biden administration, particularly as we are preparing ourselves next year for a major NATO summit in Madrid, which will provide a new strategic, a new strategy for NATO. There's going to be a lot of check-in on, you know, are our European allies spending what they need to? Are they making contributions, whether that's in the Euro-Atlantic area or maybe helping the United States and the Indo-Pacific? So uh, a Germany that is inwardly focused, highly pacifistic, pacifistic and and not willing to look at uh, and think about engaging the world that's going to be a challenge but we'll have to see what this coalition is we'll have to see what that platform says you know i tend to think it'll be a mixed picture but this is a transition period we as we won't get to the true post merkel era until their next election in 2025 because it will be a generational change of leadership and that's i think in some ways what we're waiting for what gives you, Heather, the most optimism about this election, if anything? Well, I mean, I, I always admire Europe uh, in their elections because they usually have very high participation, which, yeah. you know, democracy we is don't. not a spectator sport. <laughs> you have to you have to play. You have to be in the arena. And so I think that's important. I think they managed. Uh, there were some problems in the Berlin election which they're still sorting out, but they handled in mail-in ballots well. There was some Russian interference, uh, certainly, and they were Russian actors were trying to harm the, the Green Chancellor candidate. There was some election interference. but So I, I don't know, it's, it's every election right now. They're so consequential. But this one didn't want to talk about Germany's future 
this election was about sort of trying to preserve a status quo, a stability, which is probably quickly disappearing. But that was what I think the German electorate told us in this particular election. And then we'll see how the parties work their way through these coalition negotiations. Heather Connolly, thank you for helping us get to the truth of the matter about this critical election in Germany and what it means for Europe and the United States going forward. Thanks, Andrew. It's always great speaking with you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 